Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar. This is chapter 15 called In Search Of. Let us revisit my junior high and high school years with the painfully elaborate choreography it takes anyone to discover their place in the social hierarchy. The need for acceptance we all feel, in my case, got coupled with the constant feeling of being off balance because I never knew when the next familial judgment was about to befall me. This made for some difficult times. My parents made this one level more challenging now by enrolling the young me in an all-boys preparatory school, thereby removing any opportunity for me to socially acclimatize to female human beings during the crucial pubescent years when these social skills are actually formed. To make it just a little more interesting, for some reason they enrolled me in said preparatory school in the eighth grade. All of the other students had begun in the seventh grade and already had a full school year together to form their various cliques. Understand also that an engineer and a computer program with a good solid government jobs raised a child who never went hungry or unshod a day in his life. Yet this same fortunate child seemed like quite a poor townie in relation to the children of wealth and status who were sent away to this boarding school. Never mind that many of these rich kids were being parked at a boarding school in hopes that their bratty behavior would be curtailed by institutional discipline. Their families hoped that this would make up for their lousy parenting. This school was a former military academy where we were expected to observe the honor code and gain moral character through discipline, education, and most of all, athletics. Of the 100 students in my class, there were two Jews and, well, that was it. It was 98% white, male, and Christian. Needless to say, it didn't go well for me. It took a year or two for me to, to try to, uh, it took a year or two for me to try to give up fitting in altogether. As a six-foot-tall eighth grader, a non-athletic, non-Christian, towny pauper, I was clearly unwelcomed in their midst. Rather than waste my time trying to dress in fashions from the L.L. Bean catalog, including duck boots, khaki slacks, and blue Oxford button-down collar shirts, I decided to go the opposite direction. We were required to wear a dress shirt and tie to school every day. There were no explicit color or fabric requirements of the shirt, however. My mother happily gave me the run of my stepfather's closet to pilfer all of the 1970s garishly printed polyester leisure shirts that I could carry. Since these shirts were originally designed to be worn in nightclubs exposing a silver Coke spoon dangling in one's ample porn star chest hair, they were not manufactured with collar buttons. I had to cut buttonholes and sew on top buttons to comply with the letter, if not the actual spirit, of the school dress code. To complement these woefully out-of-questionable fashion shirts, I raided the thrift store for 25-cent extra-wide, loudly-patterned polyester neckties. I can assure you that there were combinations I was able to come up with of leisure shirts that clashed with themselves, coupled with neckties that clashed with themselves that were both beautiful and terrible to behold. Did I mention that I was not a popular kid in high school? Ostracized, ignored, hazed, bullied, and threatened, I was no longer searching for acceptance. I merely sought tolerance, peace, and to be left alone. The only place I ever felt anonymous was on St. Mark's Place on visits to see the family in New York City. New wave skinny satin fluorescent neckties purchased on St. Mark's made their way with me back to Chattanooga to be integrated into the school wardrobe. During this period in my teen life, music became a solace. Listening to, discovering, 
and reading about new music was a solitary activity that provided emotional release without the need to involve other people. I admired the musicians. I identified with those who seemed to be coming from some counterculture or other. I was, it wasn't about idol worship with me at all. In, in fact, I remember being appalled at listening to a girl talk about hero worship of Pete Townsend of The Who just because he was famous and a rock god. I was a big fan of The Who, but this girl was into them for all the wrong reasons. It had nothing to do with their playing, singing, or writing. The fame itself was somehow paramount to her. It's too bad, too. This girl was six feet tall. She was really cute. We have a prom picture together somewhere. We had been fixed up on a first date just for the promenade. Finally, here was a girl I could see eye to eye with, or in reality, here was a girl, any girl. It turned out to be simultaneously a first and last date. I liked music. I liked the idea of rock stardom. The only, there was only one problem. I didn't play an instrument. It was a minor detail which could not possibly stand in my way. In the fall of my senior year in high school, I finally started to learn to play the bass guitar. I had some aptitude for it and apparently some natural ability. This surprised no one more than me. The aptitude, coupled with some great lessons from my pal Rick, got me off to a promising start. He was a student a year older than me who had been playing bass for a couple of years. He was experienced. Willie Nelson said in an interview once that he was asked to play bass for his hero, Ray Price. This was back in 1960 because Ray's bass player at the time, Donnie Young, AKA the future Johnny Paycheck, wanted to quit the band. Ray called Willie and asked him, can you play bass? To which Willie replied, can't everybody? The point is that on some level, getting functional on the bass just isn't that difficult. I, I always say that any, uh, any trained monkey can do what I do. Getting proficient is another story. I haven't read that story yet, but I have been able to keep myself occupied with the Fender bass in my hand for almost 40 years now, so that's something, I guess. Meanwhile, back in high school, almost immediately, I was able to find some like-minded students with similar rock star aspirations. There were just a few guitar players, drummers, and singers, but I seemed to be the only bass player in the school. This was an early, fortuitous career decision that has served me well. In the spring of my senior year, there was an annual talent show that I had attended as an audience member in previous years. This year, I was to be a performer in the show in at least three different bands. We set up a stage in the gymnasium, hired a sound system from my pal Rick, see above, are you catching how small towns work here? And performed cover songs by The Police, Rush, Rolling Stones, Pat Benatar, Tommy Two-Tone, etc. The crowd went ballistic. I have a cassette recording of that night that has survived to this day, so I can say without the cloud of misrememberment over romanticized youth that the audience were indeed screaming like maniacs for us. Uh, part of this can rightfully be attributed to the sheer volume that teen males tend to exhibit when unsupervised, but that didn't account for all of the crowd's enthusiasm. They seemed to genuinely and enthusiastically love what we were playing. Was this fame? Were the 600 kids in the school gymnasium transformed instantaneously from disgust and revulsion at my mere presence to actual acceptance and, dare I say it, actually liking me? As it turns out, the answer was no. The threat of forced removal of my long hair by the football team with the tacit acceptance of the highest levels of the school administration was yet to follow this concert, but for that evening it felt good. It felt like this might be my ticket out of there. Having started so relatively late in life, playing music remained a secondary pursuit for me during college and into my initial career in the record industry. It took another eight years from the time I first picked up the instrument before I decided that music was something that I might pursue as a primary career, and it took a full 14 years from that first time until it actually became my primary source of income. 
I had a former high school classmate write to me on Facebook years later to say that I was the only person he knew who grew up to be what I said I would be. He clearly had misremembered my career trajectory and romanticized what he imagined my life to be. I didn't set out to be a musician at all when I was in high school. That happened much later. The acceptance by that classmate, however, however skewed and factually incorrect, was the acceptance that I had craved. Never mind that I didn't find out about it until 30 years later. I hoped that by playing music, the resulting inevitable fame would gain me the esteem from others that I had so desperately wanted in high school. The dictionary definition of fame doesn't specify the number of the many people who have to be talking about you to fulfill a requirement. It's quite possible to be famous among 100 students at a prestigious all-boys preparatory school and to go absolutely no further in life. High school, uh, high school football quarterbacks and cheerleaders are prime examples of the popular kids who peak a little too early in life. This is a good place to illustrate the phenomenon, this phenomenon with a story of a dude I'll call Jay. Jay and I went to elementary school together for all six of those years. During that time, we were probably of roughly equal social standing. We weren't stars of our elementary school, but we weren't outcasts either. We ended up going our separate to separate junior high and high schools. The next time I saw Jay was over the winter break of our freshman year in college. I had a rough time in high school and had turned into a fairly introverted music nerd who was in all of the school plays. What, whatever little self-confidence I might have gained over time by being a senior in high school was immediately stripped away when I became a freshman in college. Also, since there were zero girls in my high school, I couldn't relate to them at all as a species. I couldn't talk to them, didn't date much in high school or college, and was pretty much a disaster when it came to making time with all of the fine, sexy ladies I might meet back home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Jay, however, had gone a different way. He had undergone a remarkable transformation since elementary school. One night during that winter break, some pals had dragged me out to a disco. Uh, maybe disco is too extravagant a word. It was actually a Ruby Tuesday chain restaurant where they pushed some of the tables aside after hours. Somebody was playing records. There were some colored party lights involved. There were at least eight people there, so it was clearly a scene by Chattanooga standards. Keep in mind that at this age, I didn't dance, I didn't socialize. I seemed to be rendered completely mute when attempting to talk to girls so I would never have been tempted to go to a disco or any other social gathering of this sort. It turned out that this kid, Jay, had become the king of that scene. He had stayed in Chattanooga to attend college and had somehow transformed himself into the Jewish version of Tim Meadows' character, the ladies' man. He even had a polyester shirt. <clears throat> he seemed to be holding court, lording over his loyal subjects, all eight of them. The DJ put on a new record that had just come out that fall. It was Prince's Little Red Corvette. Suddenly, Jay jumped up and ran over to the DJ rig, saying emphatically, Give me the mic! Give me the mic! He then proceeded to perform a sort of karaoke sing-along with Mr. Prince. He already knew all the lyrics of this new song that was rocketing up the charts. It wasn't actual karaoke because he was just singing along with the record. It was sort of a performance piece for his faithful minions. That alone was odd enough, but the next move was even odder. I don't remember if it was the next, very next song or not, but Jay's fans started chanting, do the dive, do the dive. Not knowing what the hell they were talking about, <clears throat> I just sat there in amazement witnessing the following move. In one fluid motion and to the beat of the music, Jay dropped from a standing position into a push-up position on his hands and toes. He then arched his back and pushed himself backwards up into a kneeling position. This move continued back into a sort of kneeling limbo position, all the while doing a sexy shoulder shimmy. Hot, right?
This complete choreographed maneuver was clearly known as the dive. It looked like a deleted scene from Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever, except that it was five years out of date and seemed completely out of place in a redneck southern town. But it didn't matter. His eight fans were thrilled. I drank my one Budweiser and went home. I was out of control as a youth, I tell you. This odd scene has stayed with me for nearly 40 years. I, I don't know what part of it haunts me the most. It's partly the disconnect between what he and I became as people in such a short period of time. More than that, uh, I just think that it was how futile this scene of a theme restaurant being turned artificially into a faux nightclub really was. It was awful. Yet here was this guy I knew who had become the king of this extremely sad gathering with no sense of irony about it. He knew that he was hot shit within this microcosm, not even realized how ridiculously puny it was. It occurred to me decades later when I saw Jay's photo as an adult on a social media website that he had quite possibly peaked when he was 18 years old. Uh, that very well might have been as good as his life ever got. The person I was looking out for me, the person looking out for me uh, from the photo was a, a chubbier old man. I say old, we're exactly the same age. He lives in the same, still lives in the same town. Uh, in the photo, he seems like a pleasant enough guy wearing a generic cotton button-up dress shirt. I think he's an accountant or something. He might be quite happy. I don't know. But I do know that he no longer looks like the ladies' man holding court at a Ruby Tuesday. I've always heard that people who reach their pinnacle in high school have nowhere else to go but down and a very long time in which to get there. I don't know what became of any of the jocks at my high school. I couldn't care less. But seeing that adult photo of Jay and remembering that bizarre scene back in the disco made me wonder if there wasn't some truth to the idea of peaking too early. Thank you.